Well, good morning, Village Church. I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village. Kind of a quiet morning this morning, huh? Kind of, a, kind of like the houses of all the guys, right, with their kids. Just like quiet this weekend. Yeah, Daddy runs a tight ship, right? Daddy runs a tight ship. So, see, there's not even any laughing. We all know it's true, right? It's just quiet around your house with all the kids gone. Um, if you're a guest with us, um, our, some of, most of our gals are at our uh, women's retreat this weekend, and we're glad that many of them are there, and we're glad that many of them are here, and we're glad that we're together. We are continuing in a series that we're calling um, Helpful Wisdom for Hard Days from the book of First and Second Peter, and we're in First Peter 3, obviously, here this morning, and we're going to be talking about helpful wisdom and justice. Helpful wisdom and justice. Now, um, I am the kind of person um, that, um, I like justice. I'm, I'm the kind of person that wants justice. Um, maybe, maybe you're a little bit like me. When you see things in the world that are wrong, you want to make them right. When you see people taking advantage of, you want that to be dealt with, right? When I was a, a little kid, this played out. I, I like to, I, I just, I couldn't stand bullies. You know, if you're a person that can't stand bullies like that, was me, and I just wanted to deal with bullies, and um, I got kind of good at that. You know, I, I, I don't like it when people take advantage of other people. I don't like injustice. Um, God's kind of wired me that way in some particular ways. Maybe it's a different way for you, or maybe it's just that you see injustice, and there's something about that that just gets you, and, and it should. It's an indication of something that we'll talk about a bit later this morning, but um, I am by nature, um, like prophecy is one of my like spiritual giftings. I'm, I'm more bent toward truth and, and trying to f- seek those things out. I'm an exhorter when I take the spiritual gift test. So like, I like truth and I want to talk about it and I want to talk loudly about it. And I'm a teacher. Sometimes I want to dig in to those things and unearth what's underneath there. Like God has wired me in a particular way where I just am a person who likes justice and I want to talk about it and I don't mind talking loudly about it. When I was a young um, intern, um, I talked a little too loudly about some of these things and I think I, I sort of uh, swung the pendulum way over to the side. I remember one time my spiritual father called me into his office and I was in an internship and he was like, hey, this is the way that God's gifted you and I see you're bent towards justice and towards truth, but <laughs> you kind of need to chill out a little bit. You know, you're, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. And I, I think I found my pendulum swinging a bit more the other way after that and I, and I hope for most of my life in ministry, I've swung more toward the middle. And, and maybe you feel a similar way, like you have this sense of justice and you can really react to it very strongly. And maybe sometimes the pendulum has swung over here and you're like, well, I don't want to be, but then this, it's kind of swung back here to the middle and you're sort of finding your way. And the good news for us this morning is that we've received mercy instead of justice from Jesus. And we're called to give now mercy instead of justice in the name of Jesus. Like, there will be time for justice. Jesus will deal with that. And we shouldn't sort of swing over to this other side where we kind of don't pay attention to it, but kind of right here in the middle, like, we can trust Jesus to take care of the justice, and we can dispense mercy. I think there's a way of Christ right here. And, and this is sort of what is going on in the days of First and Second Peter, the days that Peter is writing to this church in. But I learned this pretty early on in my early days as a Christian and as a Christian leader. And there's lots of examples where I was able to see injustice. Maybe in your mind right now, you could think of an example of of one of the first times you saw some kind of injustice happen and you wanted to deal with it. 
early on in um, on my dating years, when I, I met Dean, I started to hear the stories, you know, of, of her family and some of the things that her family had gone through. And I heard a story of my father-in-law going through a business transaction with another Christian. And uh, could you believe that one Christian would take care, take advantage of another Christian? Would you believe that one Christian would treat another Christian unjustly, even in business? Could you believe that? Yeah, you could believe it, right? It happens, unfortunately, too often. And it made me so upset, you know, because I know my father-in-law, and if you know him, you know him. It's just not the kind of man that needs to be taken advantage of, such a gracious and a humble man. I saw this happen as early in my life as a Christian leader. I was in a part of a church where our pastor had um, a moral failing, and there was a plan from our elders to put together a, a plan, how to address that, how to deal with it. But then there was another church down the road who just decided, oh, that, that guy's too gifted to go through that process. And he, that church kind of took him in and under their wing and said, no, no, I think he deserves his platform still. And, and that, was a, that was a really difficult thing for me at the time, seeing how one group of even Christian leaders could act in an unjust way toward another group of Christian leaders. And this kind of stuff was part of my formative years. But what I learned early on is that my natural reaction is to always seek justice. I think what Peter wants for me and what Peter wants for us and what Jesus wants for us is, is, to, is to seek mercy for other people. Like my first reaction is to seek justice. I wonder how things would be different if my initial reaction were to seek mercy for others. Seeking mercy instead of justice. We know as Christians inherently that this is the right posture for us to, to seek mercy, to seek to give mercy instead of justice. But that's hard. And we might have some questions about how that works. And look, Peter's audience was like us. They had questions about how that worked. And so Peter actually answers some of their questions. There's basically two main questions that Peter answers this morning about this whole idea of justice and mercy and people getting persecuted, not unjustly. And the first question is this, what do we do when, what do we do when Christians treat us unjustly? What do we do when Christians treat us unjustly? And that might be a counterintuitive place for us to start or counterintuitive place for Peter to start this morning, but I'm, I'm gonna tell you that all commentators say that verses eight through 12 are really addressed to Christians. What do we do when Christians treat us unjustly? And again, it is a counterintuitive maybe place to start, but it makes sense because there's pressure on the outside in the lives of these Christians. They're under pressure, they're under the heat, they're under it, it's pressing in on them from the outside. And sometimes as Christians, when things press on us from the outside, from the world, when the world is pressing in and when there's persecution and pressure from the outside, we can begin to kind of do that to each other from the inside out. We let the world's pressure pressure us in such a way that we, we do the same thing. We apply the same pressure to other Christians. We do the same thing to them that the world is doing to us. You may have heard the phrase before that sometimes people become like that which they hate. The idea is, um, I'll never raise my kids like that, and then you end up raising your kids like that. Or you watch your parents go through a nasty divorce, and you say, I will never get divorced, and then you end up getting divorced. It's, it's that kind of thing that you become like that which you hate. When the pressure is so great on you, you can actually end up reflecting it or, well, emulating it, copying it. You, you can end up doing it yourself. I think potentially this is one of the reasons why Peter starts here. What do we do when other Christians treat us unjustly? 
Peter says, finally, all of you, so he addressing Christians here in verses 8 to 12, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter uses five imperatives to show them how to treat other imperfect Christians. Can we just all agree we're imperfect Christians? How to treat other imperfect Christians and other insensitive Christians. Can we just all agree that sometimes we may have not only been imperfect, but we're a bit insensitive to one another? We let the world's pressure press on us in such a way that we then press it out and on other Christians. And maybe even towards not only Christians who are just imperfect or who are insensitive, but sometimes have attitudes that are kind of indignant and angry and unjust. Peter says, here's how you can think and feel and act toward other Christians when they treat you unjustly. We have to start with our thinking because that's where everything starts, right? The Bible tells us that we're transformed, we change by the renewing of our, of our minds. So this is what Peter says. You can, you can see kind of the bookends. He says, be unified instead of disunified in our thinking. Be unified instead of disunified in our thinking. When, when you're feeling this from other Christians, seek the most common place of unity. And for us, that's the truth of the gospel. Come back there as often as you can. Think humbly instead of pridefully. Like we just did. We said, can we just all confess that we can sometimes be insensitive? And most of the room's like, yeah. And the rest of the room is just introverts. They don't want to talk out loud. So it's just like, that's, it's all of us. We know that, right? Like we should have a humble mindset. We should think in terms of unity and humility. That's the bookends here if you look at that verse. And our thinking then informs our feeling. If we're thinking humbly and we're thinking in terms of unity and centering on the truths of the gospel, then we can be sympathetic instead of unsympathetic. We can feel sympathy toward other Christians, even when they're treating us unjustly. And we can feel tenderheartedly instead of hardheartedly. That injustice can tend to create a hard heart. Peter's saying, no, respond with a tender heart and recognize that you can also act in such a way, and you have. But our thinking and our feeling also informs our acting, and there's only one action that Peter asks his audience to take, and he would ask us to take, I believe. It's to be loving instead of unloving in the way that we react and act toward other Christians who are treating us unjustly. Peter literally puts love at the center of this virtue list. And I created a slide for it so that you could see it. There literally are bookends about the two ways that we should be thinking, the two ways that we should be feeling, and it moves itself to the center, the one way that we should be acting, which is loving instead of unloving. Loving is at the center for a reason, because it's the one thing that we should focus on. And when we are being treated unjustly by other Christians, I believe what Peter is, is, is pointing to, literally, the Bible's pointing to, and, and again, the Bible doesn't highlight, the Bible doesn't underline, it doesn't change fonts, it just does things like this, where in the structure, it points to things. Peter is literally pointing us to the middle and saying, what is the one thing that we ought to do when other Christians are treating us unjustly? The one question we're to ask is, what is the loving thing to do in this situation, even in spite of the injustice? So what do we do when other Christians treat us unjustly? We ask ourselves the question, what is the loving thing to do in this circumstance, even in spite of the injustice? You might say, <laughs> okay, um, why would I do that? Well, the answer would be because that image is something of Jesus, right? Like, 
we, we do that because we know it's imaging something of Jesus. It's the right thing to do. Like we do this because Peter says it's the right thing. We do this because Jesus says it's the right thing. We do it because actually Jesus commands it for us to love one another. We do it because Peter commands it. This is an imperative. But, but there's more. There's more in verse 9. And verse 9 says this. For, for do not repay evil for evil or reviling for uh, reviling, but on the contrary... Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing, that you may obtain a blessing. Why do we ask ourselves, what is the loving thing to do towards another Christian, even when they're acting unjustly towards us? It's because it's the right thing to do, yes, but there's more than that. It's not just because it's the right thing to do. It's also because we will be rewarded when we do it. Now, I know some of you are like, bing, 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 rewarded. We're not supposed to seek rewards as Christians. We're not supposed to look for rewards. We're not to, that's not what we're supposed to do. No, no, that's actually exactly what Peter says, that, that, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, look, we can't see this in the English language, but we can see it in the Greek. And Peter is referring back to the, the conduct of verse 8 that we just talked about. He's saying, when you act this way, you will receive a blessing. There will be a reward for it. And I know this is perhaps a second sort of counterintuitive point in, in, in just a couple of verses this morning here from Peter, that typically as Christians, we don't do something for the reward. We do it because it's right. And maybe Peter and his audience would have thought the same thing. And so Peter actually references scripture. What do Christians do when they wonder, like, bing, 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 is that, is that a right way to think about something in the Bible? As Christians, we actually go and look at other verses in the Bible. What does the Bible actually say about seeking to do something because there's a reward attached to it? Well, Peter goes on to say in verses 10 to 12, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lip from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter is literally quoting Psalm 34, 12 to 16, a scripture that's familiar. And so sometimes when you look at an idea and you're like, is that a right idea scripturally? And all these scriptures sort of start popping off in your mind to either affirm or not an idea. I believe this is what's happening to Peter. He's telling him, act this way because it's right, but act this way because you will be rewarded to, for acting this way by God. And maybe they're going, bing, 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 bing. Don't we just do it because it's right? And Peter's saying, hey, here's a verse that just pops up that addresses this. He literally quotes it, Psalm 34. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he might see good? Sound familiar? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from seeking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Does that sound familiar? The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. This is what we do when we wonder if something out of scripture is correct as we test it with other scripture. And this, I believe, is what Peter is doing for them. What 1 Peter 3, 9 tells us is that there are some tangible and present and real, not just future, eternal, like hope of some kind of blessing. There's a real, tangible blessing right now that comes along with responding to other Christians with mercy instead of justice that comes along with responding, when we respond in love, when we ask ourselves, what is the loving thing to do in this scenario, even in spite of the injustice? 
when we act the way that it says we ought to act in verse 8, there's a blessing, a tangible, actual blessing now that comes along with that. And Peter says, here's what it is, four things. Loving life. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. How in the world can you love life if you're always seeking to return justice to someone for the injustice that's been done toward you? You know as well as I do that when someone's done something unjust to you and your mind is set on on returning the justice, that is all you think about. And you miss all the incredible things in life. You miss all of the joys in life that God has for you. You want to love living life no matter what your circumstances are? Do what Peter's saying in verse 8. Seeing good days, whoever desires to love life and see good days. Do you want to see good days? Do you want to have a a faith-filled, optimistic outlook on life, notwithstanding a difficult circumstance, even one as difficult as being treated unjustly by other Christians? Don't just focus on that and focus on getting them the justice. Again, this is not like self-help stuff. This is like right from the Bible. Peter's saying this is a reward that you will see good days when we live our lives according to verse eight. Being confident God is looking after our needs for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Like when we're obedient to God's word and when we obey the commands that are in his word, for Peter's audience, these five imperatives that he was giving to them, we know this is the inspired word of God. How much more us living our lives according to those five imperatives in verse eight. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. What, what, what it's saying here is that he knows your needs and he will take care of you. Even if you're treated unjustly in a business transaction, like part of my family was, God knows your needs and he sees and he will take care of you. He's looking after your needs. His eyes are on the righteous. And fourthly, being confident that God is listening to us. His ears are open to their prayers. Peter's just, he's just finished telling husbands, when you live with your wives in an understanding kind of way, in a just way, that God hears your prayers, but he, he tells them to treat their wives in an understand, to dwell with them in an understanding way. He says, so your prayers might not be hindered. And now Peter here tells us the similar thing, that when we obey God and we live in verse eight, his ears are open to our prayers. We'd be confident that God is listening to us. There's no sin. There's no seeking of justice. There's no vengeance. This sort of, that barrier between us and the things we're seeking from God. I think Peter's trying to tell his audience, like living justly and giving mercy, listen to me, it's worth it. Giving, it's worth it. It's worth it to live this way. Again, it's not just because it's right, but it is. And it would be enough if it was just because it's the right thing. But Peter's saying it's more than the right thing. You will be rewarded. There is a reward. It is better to live this way is what Peter's saying. And we also get a glimpse already of the reality that God shows, as God shows mercy, Jesus will also take care of the justice. At the end of this verse, it says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He will take care of the justice. He will take care of the justice. Okay, so I know you're thinking, okay, it's one thing to live justly and offer mercy to other Christians. But I have other questions, and I know you do. And Peter knows that, and he answers one other question, which is, what do we do when not yet Christians treat us unjustly? Like, I know that, like, if there's a Christian that's treating me unjustly, I have some kind of recourse. Like, I can go to them with the Bible. I can bring someone from my community group. I can go talk to an elder. I know what Matthew 18 says. 
I, I, if I'm a Christian and there are other Christians, I know how I can deal with this. And I can be asking myself the question, what is the loving thing to do here, notwithstanding the circumstance, notwithstanding the injustice? So like, okay, I get that. But what do we do when not yet Christians treat us unjustly? And this is where Peter now turns his attention. Now, who is there who will harm you? Verse 13. If you are zealous for what is good. First part of 14. But even if you would suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So the first thing that Peter says here about what do we do when not yet Christians treat us unjustly is Peter says, that's going to be unlikely if we were acting like Christians. And again, maybe another counterintuitive thing that we may expect this morning, but it's here in the original language. It's here in the grammatical structure. Like Peter is telling them it's going to be unlikely if we're acting like Christians, not repaying evil for evil, not reviling for reviling, but blessing people. And I think actually it's very interesting that Peter is telling this, just kind of like the, the Bible nerd part of me, which is a small part, but sometimes I, I dive in. Not, like, not as much as Bowman, but I'll get in there. You know, I wanna, I'll, I'll get down there. It was very interesting to me this week to actually dive into this a little bit and see that Peter is saying this. Peter is saying this is an unlikely thing if you're acting like Christians. If you're living in, verse, in light of verse 8, it's unlikely that you're going to be treated unjustly by other Christians or by other non-Christians, not yet Christians. Peter's saying this to people that he already knows are suffering because they're Christians, and it just made me wonder if this is saying anything about the way that they were living as Christians in the midst of their culture. Like, were they living in a way that was sort of inviting, for lack of a better term, any of this? I mean, sometimes there can be things that we might just bring on ourselves because we're not acting like Christians. We're saying we're Christians, but we're not acting like Christians. And the world's like, wait, what's up with that? And then, then the heat comes and the pressure comes when we don't act like Christians, when we don't follow the example of Jesus. I mean, I think what Peter's saying is something like, look, if you're a good law-abiding citizen, you're probably not going to end up in jail just because you're a Christian. And if you're a hard worker at your job, you're probably actually going to get a promotion and you're gonna, people are going to think well of you. And they're probably not going to think poorly of you just because you're a Christian if you're a hard worker and you do a good job at your job. It's unlikely. And if you're a good neighbor and you're like normal and not weird and you just do normal things that like normal neighbors do and you seek the good of your neighbor and your neighborhood, like they're probably not going to hate you just because you're Christians. You're going to be a good neighbor and they're going to like you and you're going to like them. Or in your marriage, like if you're married and you became a Christian and your spouse is not a Christian, like you can still have a good marriage. Like you will probably have a good marriage if you follow the Bible's teaching on what it's like to be a godly husband or wife. Peter starts by saying something counterintuitive. This is unlikely if we're obeying verse 8. But even though it's unlikely, we will suffer injustice sometimes just because we are Christians. And what that do, when that does happen, what, what do we do? Peter knows this is happening to them. So again, I think it's curious that he starts with this, but this is actually happening to them. They are being treated unjustly because they are Christians. So what do they do? 
Peter says in the second part of verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter tells his readers what to do, and he tells us what to do. First thing he says is, don't be fearful and don't be frazzled. He says, do not fear and do not be troubled. That word troubled is like just emotionally, like you're getting all worked up emotionally, like you're sweating this. You're fearful, you're anxious, your heart rate is going up. You know, you're getting nervous. Your body's jittery. Do not be fearful and do not be frazzled and all troubled on the inside. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, Peter says. And I think Peter says this because Peter's probably remembering the teaching of Jesus. Jesus said, have no fear of them. Interesting. (laughs) For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. Again, just say what it is without fear. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. God knows everything. He's sovereign over every sparrow. He's sovereign over every hair on your head. He knows everything. We don't need to fear man. It's a wrong response. Do not fear man. Because man doesn't have ultimate authority over anything. God does. I, I, I want to I, I step aside and do like just a little caveat, and that is... Um, Watching the news doesn't help with this. Have you noticed that? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it doesn't matter what network you watch. The, 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 the news, their bread and butter is fear. So some of these things are real. And I, and I got to tell you, I like, I like watching the news. Like most nights, like I'll be done with some work or I'll find a time and like I'll do it during my workout or my run or whatever. Like I want to watch news. I want to know what's going on in culture. And I'd say as Christians, you should know what's going on in the world. And you should be attuned and aware. You should not be ignorant about all those things. So I'm not telling you not to watch or not to read or not to stay informed. Please watch, please read, please stay informed. But know that they make their money on fear. And the more you get caught up in that, the more you get caught up in that, the, the less you're caught up in the way of Christ. Do not fear them, fear God, he's saying. The next thing he says is, but in your heart, honor Christ as Lord, the Lord is holy. Don't fear them, fear and revere God. Honor Christ as the one who has supreme authority. Honor Jesus in front of them. And Be ready to respond. Do not fear them. Revere God and be ready to respond. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. 
I know some of you are thinking right now, <laughs> I'm not even close to that. Like the Hendricks, they're so good at that. They're involved in an apologetics ministry. And like Mike Langdon talks about search ministry, this apologetics thing. And like you held up that book about the 10 questions. And honestly, I don't know how to answer one of those questions that you held up on Easter. And like I, <sighs> talk about getting jittery. You like feel nervous about like, I can't answer most of those questions. And the good news for you is I don't even think this verse is what that's what it's about. I don't even think this verse is about apologetics. In context, this verse is about giving people a, a reason that you have hope even when you're treated unjustly. It is not about an argument about creation. It is not about an argument about why would a good God allow a place like hell. It is not about winning an argument about any other apologetic question that you and I have. By the way, there are good answers to those questions too, but that's not the question I believe Peter's asking. And that's not the question he's addressing. I think in context, Peter's addressing the question, what do we do how do we respond? What kind of hope do we talk about that we have in Christ when we are treated unjustly by not yet Christians? And our hope has to be something like, <laughs> I believe and trust in Jesus because of some of the answers to the other apologetic questions, right? I believe the Bible. I believe it's reliable. I believe God's revealed himself, and I believe it's Jesus, right? And on and on. But... The real thing we're talking about here is the hope that we would have when we're treated, again, unjustly. We believe God's sovereign. We believe God's good. We believe God would even put us in this scenario so we could image something of Jesus to the people around us. We have deep and good reasons for hope. That is what we're be prepared to share. And guess what? Any Christian can do that. You do not have to have studied apologetics for the last few years to answer that question you just have to have experienced the love of Jesus and the faithfulness of Jesus in your life and the goodness of Jesus to you and to your people and to your church and to your family. With that said, I want to make a shameless plug. We're, we're actually doing an apologetics training. Like, we actually value this stuff. We actually value apologetics. I don't mean to communicate that this morning. Over the next month, we're going to have three trainings in the hub after church on a Sunday where we're going to train a core group of people how to host this, what's called an open forum through search ministries, and it's going to be incredible. And, and you're going to invite your friends and your family, and if you're not yet a Christian and you're here, you're invited to come, and, and you're going to get to ask questions, like all the questions you have about the biggest things in life and in theology, and like the Christians are just kind of going to be quiet, and you're going to get to ask questions, and then someone's going to facilitate some of the discussion, and, and we're going to get to talk about the hardest things that you could possibly talk about, and we're going to get to do that together. And you'll hear more about that. We're not afraid of those things. We actually value those things. This morning, I just think this thing is about giving an answer for the hope of the way we respond. Giving mercy instead of justice. He says, yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is the, there's a way we should do what we should do as well with gentleness and respect and a good conscience. And again, Peter mentioning gentleness and respect, it just, it just makes me curious. You ever curious when you open the Bible? And you're just like, why is that there? It just, it just makes me curious about the way that these professing Christians are living toward not yet Christians in their culture. 
Like, why is he saying with, why does he feel the need to say with gentleness and respect? And I think actually the next verse, it makes me even more curious. Look at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why does he say that? Why does he say that unless at least some of the Christians that he's addressing have been living in an ungodly or even an evil way toward non-Christians? Listen, if we're treated unjustly as Christians, can I just say, <laughs> let's not deserve it in some small way. I mean, we, no one deserves injustice. That's not what I mean. But like, if, if, if we're treated in a way that we don't like to be treated, let's, like, let's not deserve it. <laughs> let's not invite it. Let's act like Jesus. The reason it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil is that it gives us a consistent and compelling reason for people to look to Jesus through our lives. And it might even be a catalyst to draw them to himself. And this is what Peter says in the next verse. One of the most, I think, famous verses on the gospel in the Bible. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is, this is literally why I've been saying the phrase not yet Christians multiple times this morning. I've been saying not yet Christians because our assumption is that anyone could become a Christian. That the person that you think is even anti-Christian could actually become a Christian. And even if you've joined us this morning or you're watching and, and this and, and you would consider yourself more of an anti-Christian, the reality is that, that Jesus is coming for everyone and Jesus can draw anyone to himself. And for some of you, that's actually your story. And you're here this morning and you're a Christian. And sometimes not yet Christians just need to see the example of a Christian acting like Christ. That's literally what it means. Christians, followers of Christ. Especially when they're treated unjustly, Peter's saying. That we might live in such a way, even when we're suffering unjustly, that it might actually invite people to God. It would be a winsome example to invite people into Jesus. Now, Peter reminds them of this. He, he reminds his, leader, his, his readers um, that they've seen an example of this before. And he uses two examples. And, um, oh gosh, what, what should I say this? If I'm just being honest, I wish he used different examples <laughs> because they're a little odd. You know, they're a little strange. And especially to us, to them, they were not. They got it for multiple reasons. They got it. They understood exactly what he was saying. But for us, we kind of have to work our way through it a little bit. He says, in which... He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they were formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared and a few, that is a few, that is eight persons were brought safely into water. He went, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Who are they? Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. What is that about? Peter uses a seemingly odd example here because there are, I believe, a number of parallels between Noah's day and their day there in 1 Peter and, frankly, probably ours as well. Wayne Grudem points out seven of these parallels. I want to share them with you this morning. The first one is this, that Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by a majority of, un, of um, hostile unbelievers. And that was true of, in Peter's day and it's also true in ours. Secondly, Noah was a righteous man in the midst of unrighteous men. And I just want to say, if you're not yet a Christian, as Christians, we're saying we're not righteous because in and of ourselves. God sees us as righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. 
But nonetheless, Noah was a righteous man in the midst of an unrighteous, unrighteous man. That was true in Peter's day and it's true in ours. Thirdly, Noah witnessed boldly to those around him. And Peter's encouraging his friends in his day to do the same. He would encourage us to do the same, I believe. Fourth, no one knew that judgment was certain and that it was soon. Peter believed that, and so he preached that to his audience. I believe that is the case, and it's getting closer and closer every day, isn't it? Five, no experienced Jesus at work with him, preaching through him. And Peter's telling his audience that can happen with Jesus by his spirit can be proclaiming the truths of the gospel through all of you. And that's the same for all of us. Jesus, by his spirit, can preach the truth of the gospel through the words that we preach to others. As we preach the gospel, he can use that to preach to them. Sixth, in the days of Noah, God was patiently waiting for people to repent. Sometimes people ask the question, is that story about the ark really true? Like, why did, <laughs> why was it so big? Like, right, that seems fanciful. And also, it got, took so long. Why would that have taken so long? Well, it was a big boat, right? I mean, I mean, it was, and there weren't power tools, right? So, I mean, like, I, but the bigger reason is, like, God is gracious. He wants people to repent and turn and change. And number seven, God was finally, Noah was finally saved with a few others. Peter's reminding his audience, like, this is the same for you. And this would be the same for us. Peter gives another example, something they've seen through the example of baptism. These believers have seen other believers baptized. You and I have seen the same thing. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter pulls this other parallel and says, you've seen this before. You've seen it when people go down into the water and they come back up. You've seen the way that Jesus washes our sins away, raises us to life. You've seen a picture of the way that Jesus died for us, all our sin put on him, all our judgment for all the injustice that we've ever committed. Like it's all, it's, it was all put on Jesus on the cross. Just like he died and was raised, we're, we're, we've died to, to sin and we're raised to new life. Like you've seen this before. You've seen it in, in the story of God's people and you've seen it in front of you as people tell their story about their testimony, are baptized and come up out of the water. We have a visible expression of this, a visible example of this. We see this when we see people baptized. Peter gives a couple examples, and again, they seem maybe a little odd or misplaced to us. They made a lot of sense to them, especially the one about Noah. In that day, there, were all, there was all kinds of literature that pointed to these things. We don't have time for all this morning. As helpful as these examples might be and as great and as perfect as the example of Jesus might be, um, as Christians, we know that Jesus is far more than a good example. Amen. And if you're not yet a Christian, um, there's a deeper spiritual truth that Jesus wants you to see this morning. And I want to end our time by showing it to you. Look at verse 18 again where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. And G we, as Christians, we believe Jesus was not just a good example. Jesus was a good substitute. Substitute? What would we mean by that. The Bible talks about this a ton. Matthew 20, Jesus says, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be, uh, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul said in Romans 4, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
Romans 5, 8. But God loves, shows his love for us in that while we were at sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, or for us. For I delivered to you once of first importance, Paul says to the Corinthians, but I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. John says it as well. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And here we are in First Peter again. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. As Christians, we believe Jesus lived a life we could never live, a perfectly sinless life for us on our behalf. That Jesus died a sinner's death, the death that we should have died, on the cross and in our place for our sins, for all the times that we acted unjustly, for all the times that we act unjustly toward people, for all of the injustice that has come out of our lives in every way, shape, and form. And we believe as Christians that Jesus rose to give us a life we could never have otherwise, a life that's free and forgiven, that we've been forgiven for our sins by Jesus, that he was the perfect, not only the perfect example, but he was the perfect substitute. He lived a life we could never live. He died the death we should have died, and he raised to give us a life that we could never have otherwise. And this is the good news for us this morning. We receive mercy instead of justice from Jesus and are called to give mercy instead of justice in the name of Jesus. And I want to end this morning by telling you that, um, that Jesus will empower you for this. Jesus has the power to make this reality true, and he will empower you to live this way. Peter ends this section by saying, who has gone into heaven as at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. Jesus rules and reigns. This is called what theologians call Jesus' session. Like he is sitting next to the, he's at the right hand of God the Father. The imagery here is that Jesus is in charge. Jesus is sovereign over everything, over every injustice that you and I experience, whether from Christian or non-Christian. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is ruling and reigning. Jesus will mete out justice. Jesus will take care of it. And Jesus will empower us to live in a way that we offer mercy instead of it. I hope that's good news for you this morning. Would you pray with me? Oh God, thank you for giving me and us mercy instead of justice. It's an incredible reality that Father, you, um, you punished all the injustice for all of our sin when your son hung on the cross so that we don't have to be punished for our injustice that we'll receive mercy instead. And Lord, we need mercy so badly. We already sung this morning our sins, though our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. We thank you that where grace, where sin abounds, where injustice abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so, Jesus, we, we say thank you to you for, for doing all of these things for us. We help, pray you'd help us to have a posture of worship toward you. 
And we ask it in, in your name, Jesus. Amen.